This is Penumbra Cast, The Other Scene. I'm Fernanda Negrete, Director of the Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Culture at the University at Buffalo. This episode is the second in a new series of Penumbra Cast, The Other Scene, in which I interview academics who have some theoretical knowledge and experience of psychoanalysis and whose investment in literature and art indicates to me the possibility of speech about their reaction to a work of literature or art that makes room for the subject of unconscious desire. In other words, I am more interested in prompting the subject moved aesthetically by a work of art than in recording moments of mastery over a cultural object, even the modes of mastery that psychoanalytic theory and close reading can offer. My guest for this second episode of Effects of the Artwork is Jean-Michel Rabaté. Jean-Michel is a professor of English and comparative literature at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the co-founder and senior curator of Slot Foundation, a nonprofit organization that engages the publics in a dialogue about cultural and sociopolitical change in Philadelphia, the world, and the cloud. He is also co-editor of the Journal of Modern Literature and has authored or edited 50 books on modernism, psychoanalysis, contemporary art, philosophy, and writers such as Beckett, Pound, and Joyce. His most recent titles include Rire au Soleil, with Stylus, the trilogy Rire Prodigue, James Joyce, Hérétique et Prodigue, and forthcoming in January, Lacan, L'Irritant. He is well known for having published the Cambridge Introduction to Literature and Psychoanalysis, Think Pig, Beckett at the Limit of the Human, and Les Guerres de Derrida, and numerous other books and essays on the connections between literature, philosophy, and psychoanalysis. Welcome, Jean-Michel. Thank you very much, Fernanda. It's a pleasure to be your host and to be invited uh, um, to... Uh, talk about my work and exchange with you. Yeah, for me as well, it's really an honor. And I want to tell you about my inspiration for this experiment in particular in the podcast. So it's Freud in his paper, The Moses of Michelangelo, or of Michelangelo, actually, <laughs> in which Freud feels truly out of his comfort zone, since he isn't an art historian. Yet he's also compelled to make something out of his fascination with Michelangelo's sculpture of an angry Moses, with the tables of the law in one hand, plausibly on the verge of dropping them upon seeing his people worshipping the golden calf. On the other hand, the fact that Freud first published this paper under a pseudonym indicates how little he felt like an authority in the field. On the other hand, Freud's traveling to Rome and also his repeated viewings of the sculpture at the Church of San Pietro in Vincoli suggest that just as he found in Moses' sculpted body a force or a drive mobilized with the potential to destroy, but also to find some way of becoming the source of a new order, Freud himself experienced something mobilized within himself. And this was mobilized by Michelangelo, perhaps. One would call what was moving him Michelangelo's style, I would say. I want to know uh, what has moved other scholars beyond what they usually tell us in the classroom, the conference room, 
and for the most part, their scholarly publications. I'm not looking for a confessional register, of course, but rather a possible conversation that welcomes the desire that fuels someone's work on literature and art. So I'm hoping that you'll allow yourself to share any kind of experience of reading, listening, or viewing that you can think of that unleashed something of this sort in you. Thank you. That's a wonderful question to start with. And I'm glad you mentioned that famous text that I really love of Freud on Moses. I went a few times uh, to Rome, and uh, each time I visited that uh, little church, as Freud put his unlovely piazza, very strange, domineering, dark, massive sculpture of Moses, who looks a little threatening. What I, I, I like in, in this is that it's basically a lifetime obsession, we can say, for Freud. He began visiting Rome at the turn of the century, 1900, 1901, I don't remember the, the exact years, but he, he would go regularly each time, fascinated. Then, as you said, published this uh, essay 1914 anonymously, 10 years later, signed it, and then it allowed him, I think, to write his last book, which is a sort of novel, the book on Moses and monotheism. So there is a very long trajectory and indeed, with Freud, as he says, he's not at all a specialist, and I like that. I think that's a little the position I take when I write. I take risks at times uh, writing about things. I am not a specialist with lots of quotes. And when I feel like I am too much of a specialist, like the authors I worked on, Joyce Beckett, I try to undo the specializing idiom to let affects speak. But in this case, what is Freud's main affect? One can say that it is a sort of sense of the sublime that is both terrorized and fascinated. And as he says, he can only enjoy the spectacle of Moses if he can understand what is at work behind. And the key was surprisingly, as you remember, given by a little book in English, and Freud quotes it in English, in the German, and it's a book, totally unknown book that Freud had read. He read everything he could find on Moses, at least that uh, Moses of Michelangelo. And in that book, uh, an English critic says, the gesture of the prophet is so awkward that to imagine it is a profanation. And I am interested in this idea that Freud has to accomplish a certain profanation, that is, go against a certain religious respect. And we know that he indeed profanated Moses in his final book when he argued that Moses was not at all Jewish, but an Egyptian. Uh, still today, many of my Jewish Orthodox uh, students have a hard time with this book. How can a Jewish man say that Moses was not Jewish, the founding father. Uh, but it starts with the sculpture and with the work that Freud does with the sculpture, and he has to undo the sculpture, and literally he does it by making it move, which is quite extraordinary. He has little drawings to show that the gesture of Moses betrays a certain ambivalence, that Moses was going to throw the tables of the law, and then at the last minute, 
clutches them at the same time that he controls his anger by putting his fingers in his beard. There's a wonderful analysis of the fingers in a beard. It's a sublime text, uh, really. I used it in a little book I, I did in English and in French that was called Given One Art to Crime. And I saw recently that it was reissued. I was quite happy to see that it's on the web via Oxford University Press, Liverpool University Press. And I was trying to talk about the links between art and crime and how to, let's say, put it mildly, to read a sculpture, to read a painting, to read a text, to read a play, to read a film, often one has to accomplish a certain profanation, that is, be a little irreverent, be a little on the side of a certain fun that will not take so many precautions that might even hurt pieties and at times even annoy people, irritate people. This is why in my forthcoming book, I insist upon this idea of irritating. I think if one does not irritate people, one is too complacent. And I, I like irritating people. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm really glad that you brought up uh, what's going on with that Lacan irritant in your forthcoming book. You said quite a bit here. I also appreciate that. I was asking you about the experience of being moved by a work, and you turned this around a little bit to point to how Freud is making the sculpture move. And that seems to speak about what's happening in these interactions with artworks, but in many directions, not just from the work to the viewer or reader, but it's like a double <laughs> kind of twist going on there. Yes, this is where I decided to, I mean, a number of titles uh, foreground the idea of laughter and actually had published on this in English first. But for me, and this is not so often said, this was the first effect uh, or consequence of an effect of my symptom, perhaps in meeting Lacan, hearing Lacan, that I went to his seminars when I was a student. And of course, I was naive, ignorant, and just, you know, like after May 68, irreverent, and so on. And I didn't take Lacan too seriously. But what struck me was that he was extremely funny. He made me laugh, but I was the only one to laugh in that huge audience of people absolutely fascinated. And I was looking around and, you know, why, why are they not laughing with me? Um, I felt a little bizarre. But then, uh, working a little more on Lacan, I could see that he, he did it deliberately. He, he knew exactly what he was doing. It was not, uh, And he, in many of his later seminars, he often uses the word in English, surprisingly. He talks about Le fun, like Québécois, Québécois would say that. Le fun, the fun, uh, the fun of psychoanalysis. And I have to say that then when I had the experience of psychoanalysis in Paris a long time ago with a very good psychoanalyst, a Lacanian psychoanalyst, I can name him, he, he died unhappily a few years ago. I'm still very, very touched by memories of him, Alain Didier Weil. We had Many, many moments of pure laughter, the two of us, 
um, for a few years, and I owe that to him, that he allowed me to laugh about myself, <laughs> which I think is a very good therapy, not to take myself too seriously or take problems too seriously. And I think that uh, this is what the best of the Lacanian school has brought. Um, Zizek, I think, has understood that uh, as well, that psychoanalysis should be on the side of fun, on the side of laughter, a laughter that can criticize, that can make you re revisit, revise, change, modify your position, or just simply smile at what you thought you were holding dear and so on. But this is, I think, where American psychoanalysis has failed most or betrayed uh, this inheritance most huh? in America, <laughs> psychoanalysis has become so serious that then it has become so grotesque. Uh, and so I, I, I want to insist on this. Whenever something like the unconscious appears, there is an effect of fun. Wow, that's really refreshing. It's very interesting to think about this. And let's keep it in mind throughout the interview. In fact, I have been looking at some of your books on laughter. I suspected that this question of transgressing or of profanation had to do with your work on laughter. And I'm glad to hear that indeed it does. And it's very profound what you're saying about the role of psychoanalysis or the way in which laughter can have uh, important and really like very serious effects <laughs> that it shouldn't be cast out. Yeah. So I am interested in how your recent work has not only uh, a lot on Lacan and literature, obviously on Freud, Ma Marx, and Kafka, on Joyce, but also on affect and jouissance in relation to creation. So actually this question of laughter that you're bringing up um, ties into affect and jouissance in an interesting way. And it's uh, very close to the spirit of my experiment in this podcast. So, for example, in Rire au Soleil, which I would maybe translate as laughing in the sun, or how would you translate? That, that is a good here? question. It, it, it's, it's a good question because I, I would say more maybe laughing at the sun. Rire au soleil, it's a quote from Rimbaud. And in that poem, Rimbaud is establishing a sort of aggressive laughter. I, I think the, a good title may be Casimir Malevich Opera, Victory Over the Sun from 1913. I was thinking about that opera a lot when writing it, although I don't mention it. I had discussed it in another book on 1913. And uh, I, I have never seen it unhappily that opera, and I. But if I, if I had another lifetime, I would learn Russian and translate it, and and have a, a group of people um, stage it because it's an extraordinary modernist futuristic opera in which the idea is that uh, the new revolutionaries are going to take uh, an airplane and battle against the sun. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. All right. So that that's very helpful to think about the translation. And in any case, this book that you wrote, Rire au Soleil, encourages me to think about a conversation on what moves you 
in literature because that's very present right there. So at the end of chapter one, which discusses the source of Gide's impulse to write, you announce the following. I'll read it in French and then I'll read you my translation. Je vais aborder le processus par lequel tout sujet, tout jeu, peut devenir texte à son tour. Ceci implique que je puisse non seulement être un autre, mais encore un poème. Ce qui ne veut pas dire que nous sommes tous des poètes, mais au moins que nous sommes tous des poèmes. And my translation is, I will take up the process through which every subject, every I, can become text in turn. This implies that I can not only be another, but also a poem, which doesn't mean that we are all poets, but at least that we are all poems. So in this passage, you nod to uh, Rimbaud's famous claim from the Lettre du Voyant, Je est un autre, I is another, which has often served as a kind of premise to psychoanalysis. But you are also pointing back to the beginning of your book, where you read Virginia Woolf's beautiful idea of an art that could link all human beings, where I quote, the whole world is a work of art, that we are parts of the work of art, end quote. And you also point forward to the next chapter, of course, which examines Lacan's claim in the preface to the English edition of his seminar 11, The Four Fundamental Concepts of Psychoanalysis, I am a poem and not a poet. Je suis un poème et non un poète. In all three writers, Rimbaud, Wolf, Lacan, there is a strong move away from the agency over language and toward an experience that displaces the I and has textual and poetic effects. Is this one of the ways in which literature and psychoanalysis share a common point of origin in your view? And can you say more about your interest in this problem? Thank you very much, Fernanda. Yes, you you have hit upon, I think, the most important element for me. And I was surprised, in a sense, to see that Wolf and Lacan converge here, even though Lacan doesn't seem to mention Wolf very much. And Wolf, as we know, was at times a little hostile to psychoanalysis, to a certain psychoanalysis, even though she had met Freud and liked Freud, but felt that somehow there were certain limitations among the use of uh, psychoanalysis in the Bloomberg circle. But what Wolf states very clearly, and she says, the world, we are a work of art, but there is no author to it. Lacan says something very similar when he says, I am a poem, not a poet. Or as he said, not enough of a poet. He would want to be more of a poet, but he is not. It's funny because Lacan has often been criticized for being too much of a poet in his writing. And he said, no, I'm not enough of a poet. And he's totally right. I don't see Lacan at all as a poet, even though he wrote one sonnet, only one. And his use of language doesn't go in that direction. He's not telling people become poets and so on. On the contrary, the awareness that we are poems is a way of destroying the romantic idea that we are all, you know, as most 
in the 60s, we would say, everybody is an artist, everybody is a creator, release your child within, your poet within, and so on. Uh, psychoanalysis goes a little cynically against the grain of that kind of romantic utopia that we can just give birth to our inner child and let him write his or her poems and so on. No, it's uh, an effort at trying to reread ourselves, our lives as already written poems, but they keep on being written. They're not finished, of course, until we die. And so there is this general sense that it presupposes that we understand what writing means. And I think most of the important writers that I have worked on and post read would be two important uh, authors, uh, if one uh, rereads Gide, it's funny because I, I came much closer to Gide working on Lacan and Gide, and I reread Gide, and he's not somebody I love fully, but still, I uh, many, many texts of Gide, and especially the autobiographical texts, the confessional texts are amazing, and I admire the political aspect of Gide, who was very courageous to denounce the so uh, Stalinist uh, Russia, but also denounced colonialism and so on. Uh, it's not enough said that uh, generally people who are seen as hommes de lettres, like Gide was for Lacan, was also the most one of the most courageous intellectuals of the 20th century. Uh, I would say much more courageous than people like Sartre who for, for, for decades didn't dare denounce things he knew were, were lies. Uh, Rajid went to Russia and denounced what he saw. He went to Congo and he denounced what he saw. With, with uh, Africa, uh, what he uh, published had absolute consequences. People were fired. Finally, they realized that some of the excesses of colonization had to be changed. And, and uh, this is just one, one example of what can be done. Or people like uh, a mathematician like Cavayes, who took risk and was killed during the war. Uh, this kind of a generally conflation, I would say, between the meditation on what writing really is and the political function or ethical function of, of writing. And in that sense, uh, I think this is what psychoanalysis can bring, I would say, effortlessly, elegantly, and not so cheaply, but not so expensively uh, either, uh, to people that what it means to see oneself as a poem. <clears throat> a poem, I, I like it, it's more, uh, more than a text. Say, you are a poem, okay? You, you're not just a text. What kind of poem, of course? You, you can be an energy or a sonnet or... <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yeah, a ballad <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And I lately I've been thinking about Gide more in terms of how he uh, rejected uh, Proust's manuscript. <laughs> so That was his big mistake. That was... But, you know, here he was a little naive, uh, and I think he learned from that. He apologized to, to Proust, quite honestly. Huh? He, he, he confessed to Proust that he was guilty for the famous rejection. Uh, why did he reject Proust? 
Uh, 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 it's not that he was bored by uh, the fact that for 200 pages, we see a young boy who wants to get a kiss from his mommy, which is a little annoying indeed when we begin reading. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is the fact that uh, she thought that Proust was lying about his homosexuality. And he didn't like that. And he thought that Proust should have come out. So uh, Gide started this, uh, you know, the transposition theory facing Proust. More recently, a very good uh, American Proustian, Elizabeth Leidenson, has written an excellent book on Proust lesbianism to show that Gide had got it a little wrong. But it is because Gide was a militant for outing homosexuality and make it acceptable. And he, he, he took some risks there as well. And he felt that Proust was not courageous enough. He misread, I think, the way Proust was so immersed in his writing precisely that he wanted to work at another level that was not the level of explicitness. And we know that when Proust was composing La Recherche, he had in mind a whole book on homosexuality. And then he decided to insert it into his massive opus, La Recherche, uh, in the section Sodom and Gomorrah, and so on. But I'm mentioning Proust because if one reads Proust till the end, or skips a lot and reads only the end, one can see that uh, what he understands at the end is that the, the narrator, and in that sense the narrator is a generic subject, understands that he is both written and writing, and that he has to, to write to read himself. And that, as he says, uh, truth comes from when we discover how much we've been written by life. And that is truth for him. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I find him, I am currently teaching a, a course on Proust. And so I find it like a very good example of this question of being a poem and what is written and what is to be discovered as writing in the, like in living. Exactly. So this is why at the end, you know, like Nabokov and many others, when they describe La Recherche, uh, they say, at the end, we have this paradox that young Marcel, let's name him Marcel, the narrator, is going to sit at his table to write the book we've been reading. Wrong. I, I don't think it is exactly true. We will have the young Marcel sitting at his table reading the book we have been reading. <laughs> Not exactly the same. And we are therefore in the same position as the narrator. Yeah, that's, that's, that's lovely. And very complicated. I'm going to bring that to my class and see how it works. <laughs> well, you have to bring them to read the ending, having read all the rest, which is, I think, the most difficult. Yeah, class. we're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> as you know, uh, I love this uh, quote of uh, Roland Barthes, uh, the pleasure of Proust is every time you read it, reread him, you never skip the same passages. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it is true. I'm, I am rereading Proust and I'm noticing things I that last exactly, time were exactly, just completely... Exactly. You have to skip. One has to skip. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So I was wanting to uh, insist a little bit with this... Um, initial quote that I read from your book on the presence of Wolf and what she had to say there, because to me, it strikes 
as different from what Rimbaud and Lacan are saying in the Je est un autre, je suis un poème et non un poète. And it's interesting in that it extends to all humanity. In some ways, you were pointing to this through Gide in your response, and you were talking about not idealizing the poet or artist in the way that perhaps the 68 youth was really doing. But here, Virginia Woolf earlier is saying, Hamlet or a Beethoven quartet is the truth about this vast mass that we call the world. But there is no Shakespeare. There is no Beethoven. Certainly and emphatically, there is no God. We are the words. We are the music. We are the thing itself. So what are your thoughts on this question of all of humanity? And as a second question, it's striking to read her insistence that there is, quote, a token of some real thing behind appearances, behind, quote, the cotton wool of daily life, where she situates this we that she is made aware of through sensations and shocks that she must put into words in the text you're citing. Yeah. I, I I love those texts, and I think they are so deep, so good, so well formulated. It, it's amazing the the genius of Wolf, and I think it had to do with uh, what we might call today borderline status. The fact that she, as she says in a, um, a little text from the thirties, I found somewhere, um, she says. Nothing is real for me until I write it down. So for her, writing, and I think for many of us, and I think I am interested in this question of the generic um, in view of what might be called identity politics, in which you know everybody is in a different little corner, uh, uh, masculine, feminine, uh, African-American, uh, Indian, European, Caucasian, and so on. No, I think all those authors insist, as let's say Alain Badiou has done, on this idea of the generic. That is a subject that is true for all of humanity, even though, of course, there are sexual differences, class differences, and so on. But it is also the Marxist subject, I think, fundamentally, I would say. It's a subject that can fight against capitalistic alienation, and it is generic in the most etymological sense of the world. I try to uh, work on that in the Marx section of the uh, second book. And for me, what Wolf is bringing is something that I think Deleuze was the first to see well, uh, as uh, he quotes her, actually. Uh, he quotes a diary, and in the diary, she uses the strange adverb, exteriorly. I want to write exteriorly, from the exterior, not from the interior. I think there she meets Lacan, because at the end of his uh, long career, Lacan had reached this weird uh, and apparently counterintuitive statement that writing was touching the real, that the real was writing. If we know what the real means for Lacan, uh, the real is more on the side of the impossible, the non-symbolizable, the 
outside language and so on. So how can writing be outside language? There's something a little strange there. But what both Wolf and Lacan want to describe is that writing can catch what is the most difficult thing to catch, which is uh, the whole of jouissance. There is something that is so uh, devastating at times, so strong that it passes through us and can destroy us or leave us really empty, which is what Wolf experienced in her own body and life. And uh, why every time she had finished a novel, she tried to kill herself. And unhappily, uh, the tragedy of her life was that her husband imagined that she would not kill herself because she hadn't finished between the acts and she decided to kill herself before she had actually finished that novel. She would have been uh, alive otherwise. I mean, would have lived a little longer, but she couldn't stand not being writing or written at the same time. And so, indeed, strong writing touches us in that way, like Freud has been touched by the statue in a way. And, uh, it, it traverses us. And so otherwise, you know, we are just literati, we, we, we play games, uh, and then there might be better games to play, like casino and, and so on. <laughs> That's great. I love this point you're, you're making on, on writing and what is where the signifier fails and where writing is. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you, you see this also in Kafka. Uh, there's this famous letter of Kafka of 1904 that has so often been quoted, I don't know, but, you know, the text breaks the sea, frozen in us, but it should also strike us like a suicide, like a murder, like a catastrophe. See? Very sort of romantic uh, Kafka before he had started really uh, writing, but when he, he writes well, and when he, he finds his voice in 1912 with this uh, the judgment, the verdict, then he understands that writing is a way of traversing death many times. That's why most of his heroes die relatively <laughs> soon uh, in that famous short story. And the son is condemned to death by the father for no clear reason. And very joyfully, he, he goes and uh, jumps over a bridge. When Kafka wrote to his friend Brod, that when he had written the ending, he had felt like an immense orgasm. And this is how jouissance works, that the fact that, and as he says, I die many times in my text, but this is not bad. That's how I, I, I function. Yeah, this really um, ties into the next question that I have for you, which is about writing. And in particular, I'm wondering about how we study literature. So just as you were saying, you know, it's not a game. If you want to play games, go to the casino if you'd like. Writing is about something much more vital and something traversing your body, as you said, something to do with one's death as well. But then what is it, in your opinion, that leads to, you know, to, to denial of this very extreme dimension of writing, such that we treat it as if it were just not just um, in scholarly contexts, but even in general, like the the place of fiction literature is as if we were talking about something not real, something just a little game. Why do we do that? Yeah, I mean, 
in in my own i can just say very very briefly because it's uh would take many hours to to develop all this i tended to see writing at first as a deridian notion because derrida had been my uh, teacher at the Ecole Normale Supérieure and for many decades I thought that like many Derrida disciples writing was a sort of absolute weapon and that it was in a way something that the later Lacan had slightly misunderstood then now I have tended to see a little more a convergence between the later Lacan and Derrida on that issue of writing. And for Derrida, as you know, what constitutes writing essentially is that it is not the living presence of consciousness present to itself, but it is the introduction of dead, inert technology, materiality, and so on. So writing is on the side of death and technology. And there is no um, dialectization that will work. And that's how he always somehow undoes texts that romantically want to traverse this, creating a sort of illusion of spontaneity, self-identity, self-presence, and so on. That's uh, well known, the Deridian position. With the later Lacan, I think, reaches the same idea while discussing against Derrida and thinking Derrida has stolen everything from him and so on. Lacan, this kind of jealous, slightly paranoid position. But by making of writing the real and the whole of Jouissance in literature, he finds something that allows him to return to the major insight of Derrida, which is that writing has something to do with the death drive. And the death drive is for Lacan the fundamental drive. It's, as he said, the structure of all drives. And so this issue of the death drive, uh, for Lacan, as in the famous passage of Écrit, he says, we learn it through writing. Writing teaches us about the death drive because it's our death in writing. It's a Hegelian idea for Lacan, but radicalized and made stronger by this metapsychology that he finds in Freud. And I think, you know, for uh, the legacy of Freud, uh, one can distinguish between those psychoanalysts who, who do not take the death drive very seriously. We think that it is a sort of mistake of Freud. It was a an older man, pessimistic, the war, and so on, the dead right. And those who take it seriously. So what does it mean if we take the dead right seriously the way Lacan does? See, what are the effects of the death drive? These are the questions. I'm not going to answer to that, but I would like simply to say that for many of my friends who are psychoanalysts, I can see that this is a divisive, I would say, uh, uh, question, especially in, in many schools, American schools, but not only American. I would be absurd to attack American schools for that. This sort of slight embarrassment facing the dead drive. Oh, dead drive. Oh. <laughs> and then people prefer to call it Thanatos. Freud never called it Thanatos. He never said Thanatos. 
I'm so glad at the same time that um, thanks to Mark Solms, as uh, you may know, the next, uh, it will be next year, I think, the new standard edition, Freud's works in English, uh, supervised by Mark Somm, who is somebody I admire, will replace instinct with drive. Every time, every time you have three in German, you will have the word drive in, in English. And that, I think, is comes from Lacan and the Lacanian, because it's so annoying to see people say, the instinct, the death instinct, and so on, aha, the death instinct. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. No, I absolutely the death drive is what's at the core of the of this problem with writing and also what is so scary about really embracing the stakes of it. Exactly. Exactly. And someone like Kafka is a good guy there because he had read some Freud, we know. He was at some point a friend of Otto Gross, which is interesting. Uh, Otto Gross is a very interesting psychoanalyst who has been a little forgotten with amazing insights. Uh, and Kafka liked Otto Gross. He was going to collaborate with him on the journal. Otto Gross, we have uh, American uh, students. Uh, they will perhaps remember that he, he appears in, in, in this film, uh, Sabina Spielrein. So Otto Gross, uh, who, who died, a sort of revolutionary. And in Kafka, there was this sense that one can only write from the point of view of the death drive and beyond. Wow, that's great. So with death drive in mind and beyond, let's think of laughter, which you announced from the beginning and which is in the titles of these books. So you explore in Rire au soleil des affects en littérature and in Rire prodigue, Rire et jouissance chez Marx, Marx, I have to switch to English, Freud and Kafka. <laughs> Why in particular this laughter is an effect of an affect is my question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, with Marx, Marx, one can wonder why Marx here. <laughs> and it's because I at least the seminar I attended uh, in Paris uh, remained with me all my life. And it's in that seminar that Lacan explained that when he was a student himself, he was reading Marx's Capital and he paid attention to a point nobody had seen, which is that when Marx describes surplus value, he imagined a little scene in which the capitalist suddenly discovers the simplicity and the productivity of the idea of surplus value, and he laughs, and he shares that laughter with two people, and so on. So it's quite interesting that uh, Lacan should stress the role of laughter in Marx. I hadn't paid attention to that so much, but quite a long time ago, I had... Uh, taught a few times a class on the German ideology, which is a very funny text. Since then, I have worked a little more on the younger Marx, the early Marx, and the fact that Marx had uh, written, we just have the few fragments he, he left, a sort of Sternian novel that is absolutely hilarious. You have all those moments of laughter in Marx, nevertheless, that, that is what interested me a critical laughter. And I would like to say that this is not in my book because my book is written for a French audience. But if I were to rewrite it in English, one 
major issue I would try to discuss is this, the fact that after the Trump years, it has been felt that laughter is only on the right, that you can only have a, a, a Trumpian laughter, uh, a cynical laughter, a laughter that denies truth, uh, and so on. And many of my friends who are on the left and so on say, no, no, you cannot laugh these days. Any joke is, a, is, is potentially humiliating, dangerous, will offend people, and so on. And I, I take that point, that indeed, laughter often can wound, and so you, you cannot make jokes about uh, obese people, you cannot make jokes about short people, you cannot make jokes about morons, you cannot make jokes about this, you will offend a certain group of people, you cannot make jokes about Polish people, you cannot make jokes about Ukrainians, but can you make jokes about Russians? Maybe not, and so on. So there is a sort of inner castration of many of my friends on the left and say, no, no, we cannot make jokes. This is not, uh, we, we leave it to to the right and so on. I think it's a, it's a dangerous position. And so my perverse uh, French contrarian idea will make me want to find jokes that they could accept and so on. Uh, but it's not so easy. So this is, this is an issue I, I have now, precisely in the sense that I've often noted that I think it's not the only explanation, but if you are too serious, and I understand that a certain indignation, a certain anger is not something that will make you laugh, make you scream, make you attack, and so on. But if you're only in that mode of indignation, righteous uh, anger, at uh, the system and so on, you become the object of a joke without realizing it. And I think that's one little problem that so many people who are somehow frozen, like statues of indignation, uh, I would say, have to be unfrozen in a sort of Freudian mechanism of making them move, seeing what's behind. And as soon as you do this, you, you will touch uh, something that will perhaps undo the frozen attitude, defreeze the freeze or something Wow, like this is a very profound problem. I mean, I wasn't thinking about this myself, but, uh, but it really shows how serious the laughter is or how important laughter is. It is, it, it, it is, yes, yes, yes. And I've, I've read the... Uh, one or two texts recently on this issue, and one, I will not name him, I disagree, but concluded that today you cannot make a joke if you come from the left. It's all the comedians and analysis tend to be offensive and attack too many susceptibilities and so on. Scary, I would say. If this is true, this is really scary. I am very aware of this with my students. Uh, we, we know uh, everybody who has watched that uh, series, The Chair, knows how the stupid joke of the professor of English who, who, who stupidly makes a Hitler salute uh, as a joke can be taken seriously and so on. And we all have moments where 
we, we think we make a joke and we are offending people and so on. Indeed, indeed, that's something to, to be aware of in our very self-conscious uh, moment. But I know very well, having a, a daughter who is 23, that very often she said, no, 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 you cannot make that joke. No, 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 you cannot make that joke. And she was really shocked herself. So I had to think about, about this, uh, what it means. Well, I think in Europe, in uh, Latin America, very different sensibility and a lot more is allowed in Mexican, in Argentinian culture that I, I know. There's much more, much more openness to being a little shocked and so on. And you, but in the in the US these days, yes, you really shock people, and they will not forgive you, or they will be wounded for a long time. So you don't want to do this to your friends, indeed. So that's something that I will have to consider if I ever re write this into into yeah, English. Yeah, that sounds very promising. I think it would be important to think about this in in an American context or in an Anglophone one. You know, you, when we started the interview, you were talking about how you were the only one laughing in uh, Lacan's classroom and that, you know, you were on the verge of exploding with laughter, but you saw that this was an inappropriate response, according to the general audience. Um, and I wondered whether Lacan uh, hoped that someone would transgress this solemnity, like given his own, uh, well, several things. One, his complaint that he spoke to the walls, je parle au mur, he said. And also given his interest in avant-garde literature, which is very playful, which is transgressive by uh, definition. And uh, so inciting what resonated for me was not only the walls in Je parle au mur of the silent classroom, but also the mature ones, oh, Je parle au mur, the ones who are mature, I imagined, the people who are who know how to behave and who won't laugh. But I wonder if that is genuine maturity. And in fact, in what you have been pointing to as a problem, the problem of not laughing anymore because nothing is because everything is very uh, offensive, because we're angry, because it's not funny, if that's the real response of someone mature, perhaps there's another thing to grow into. Maybe there's a way to burst out laughing that opens up another space that is neither the one of the cynical laugh of the right, and that is not that utter seriousness that is a problem a frozen <laughs> statue on the left. Yeah, there is always the slightly regressive aspect of, of laughter. And I think Freud described that uh, relatively well. We bypass censorship when, when we laugh at a joke. A good joke is one in which we, we become a little childish. And it's something that I had described a long time ago, but it is true what happened to Lacan when I was a student at the École Normale Supérieure, because I was not the only one. We were a few of the same age and not really understanding much of what was happening. We decided to play a practical joke on Lacan and we rigged this microphone and we put in it uh, pornographic soundtracks, uh, grunts, and we, 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 we did that, and we went to see the effect of our joke on Lacan. And our thing didn't come, but it, it came at the end of one session, 
It's not actually in the transcription. One doesn't see it. Lacan heard that. He laughed and he said, let's stop it. That's enough for today. And our joke fell flat. <laughs> we felt really stupid to think, okay, we thought we wanted to, you know, undercut the seriousness of what we saw as this weird, uh, I would say, ritual of Lacan teaching to devoted disciples. And then the joke was on me because then I came back and I became a disciple. <laughs> so you, you see here, that's the, often the joke. And we, we see this in many, like a good book by Kundera called The Joke, that the joke turns against you. Uh, a joke can often, uh, is reversible, uh, as it were. We, we know this in, 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 many, in many cases, but Freud has this very neat analysis of uh, how a joke somehow makes you become a little you know you, you you regress and it's not unpleasant at times yeah but maybe there is a laughter that has a political potential that is yet to come so <laughs> that's it that's it you know i'm i'm uh so interested that uh the the ukrainian president zelensky uh started out as a comedian not 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 enough has been uh said about that huh? and that he, he started by making fun of all the circuits of power and he's an amazing uh, leader uh, for his people so but that's something uh, uh, the american equivalent is only reagan but he as far as i know he was more a, a cowboy than a, a comedian but he became a comedian as, as a president which is yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's not exactly the outcome we were looking for. But no, but but in among comedians, I could say that I just uh, recently went to a, a Maria Bamford uh, stand-up show. So I recently discovered women comedians, and I'm very intrigued at how difficult that position is for a woman to do stand-up, and in fact, to speak of to speak in a way that is being very subversive in in different ways not just offering uh the figure of what is expected of a woman in particular this woman talks a lot about mental illness i think virginia wolf might have appreciated her <laughs> yeah 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 i mean this is why i think there is a new generation that is and i see this with a few of my students who do comedy or writing text for either like little groups or single solo women. I think it comes mostly from women or in France, mostly from people who are African French or Berth French, uh, Algerian French, a, a, a whole generation. And that, that is happening in France, or making fun of everything and very, very good, very good political humor. Yeah, but it's slowly coming. It's very, very slow in coming and uh, lots of difficulties and recuperations and so on. And there's also, of course, the, the danger of missing completely the target or being seen as, you know, this is why I, I, I like Marcel Duchamp, for instance, because in my work on Duchamp, I, I saw that he would often resort to silly wordplay as a way of getting out of situations in which he was caught and so on. But they look a little silly for us today. They were just simple spoonerisms, we might call them, inverting and so on. But 
he he did that a lot and so many of his works have funny titles yeah no i think it's magical i don't think it's it's turned into something silly but we let's turn to that just after this uh last question that i have because it it's based on a point of convergence between your work and mine and i was excited to hear you speak about it and you know in person so there's this comes from some uh, an essay that you wrote after experiencing Sophie Cal's installation Papu saisir la mort in 2007 at the Venice Biennale and i was interested in it because i wrote about douleur exquise and not just about the work but my experience of seeing it for the first time and the effects that it had on me so i i've i called that the clinical uh ex- experience of engaging with a with the installation or the clinical aesthetic experience of an unrepresentable sensation but in your essay you reconsider your initially negative reaction to cal's showing a video of her dying mother in the in, in the installation and you compare her gesture of granting her mother's wish to be present at the Venice Biennale to Antigone's burial of her brother on the grounds of desire as a figure of absolute singularity that is blinding and therefore ungraspable, like the death of the mother for Sophie Gell, as you explain. So I'm interested in the fact that you think about your own experiences of viewing artworks and you write about that too. And I'm interested in your attention to the dimension of an ethics that is operating in aesthetic feeling and in creative acts. So what is the relevance of these two dimensions of the artwork of experience and ethics for you? Yes, yes, thank you. Um, indeed, I mean, you, you are right to remind me of this because I change. Uh, my position. I was in Venice uh, when that show was launched. I saw it then in Paris, and then I saw it in New York. Three different instantiations, and each time I changed a little my position. But in Venice, uh, she had another show that was fantastic on the breakup letter. I don't know whether you, you saw that as well. That I loved. It was so funny, so well done. Prenez soin de vous. Prenez soin de vous. In which she has this weird message sent by a lover who breaks up with her in a very clumsy wording. And then she doesn't understand or pretend not to understand what he's saying. And she has 100 women, each from a different perspective, to analyze, perform in order she pretends to understand what he meant. Hilarious. This is ferocious. The ferocious debunking of male sexuality, male stupidity. Extraordinary. And then that she was the main artist. And then there was this thing on the murder. And I have to say, I was maybe being American for the first time in my life. I felt shocked. I felt shocked, you know. Uh, Americans are so often shocked by little things that do not shock uh, Europeans. I was shocked. I thought, no, no, you cannot do that. You cannot show a film of your mother dying. No, no, this is really... And I I reacted like that. So so I let myself uh, say, no, I I didn't like it. 
Then a good friend of mine, an Irish man, said that he couldn't see it. He had been not the same day in the same room, and he had thought about his mother who had died, and he was sobbing uncontrollably. He said this was the work of art that had touched him most. Thought, oh, really? Okay, well. And I, I was trying to say, look, um, no, no. And he, he made the Anthony Downey, I can name him. He made me change a little bit the fact that he had been, and also I would say, as naively as I was shocked, he was moved by it. My mother is still alive, happily. So I don't have that experience. Uh, but I thought, no, um, if my mother were very sick, I would not go with the camera and leave it in front of the bed and so on, trying to record. Then Anthony made me realize, of course, the gesture can feel a little excessive, but what I, I, I liked, what her point was that she had missed the moment of the death. She had let the camera go on and she needed, so she'd been there for many, many days. And just when her mother died, technically, she was not there. And then when she redid it in Paris, it was very different because it was in one of the public libraries and the library became like a church. And in New York, it was really a church. And it became much more a meditation on rituals and so on. So this is why. That explains why. Uh, and actually, I met Sophie Kahl um, for the first time. I'd never met her uh, at the occasion of that New York show. And I was glad that we were able to chat for a, a little time. And, and uh, I could say how much I admired her, her work. Um, but and her work is always somehow controversial, pushing boundaries, pushing the envelope a little too far, showing what can be acceptable and unacceptable and so on. And then I understood that she, I mean, I had been a little too rapid in my first pseudo-ethical rejection, and I had not really read fully what she yeah. wanted to do. Yeah, that's great, because the, you, there you show a real distinction between ethics and what you just called pseudo-ethical or like more of, but that also is that we're surrounded by, by those kinds of moral prejudices or, or things that just like, or maybe it's again about like suddenly be, being on the receiving side of the transgression, like something really goes a little too far and then something is working in the artwork. Yeah, generally, you know what I call pseudo-ethics is in fact a consideration of the frame that is that I thought, okay, if she had done it for a family, fine. But to show it at the Biennale in Venice, that is going too far. But it's a little like the wrong moral indignation a few years ago of people at the Whitney Biennale who felt that I will not name anybody, but a Jewish white artist could not paint uh, something evoking Emmett Till's uh, uh, murder because she was not African American, and because this was the Bien this was the Whitney Biennale, and she was supposed to make money out of something she was appropriating, and so on. And there's in those pseudo ethical moments a sort of consideration of the economics of the frame, the framework, 
and so on that is often misplaced and, and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the I'm just trying to irritate as many people as I can right now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what uh, in, in one of a few sentences. <laughs> we'll see. No, I mean let's let's talk about the artwork that you chose and see yes, the, how yes. this remains controversial in some way. I don't know. I, I don't know what you are going to say about Marcel Duchamp, but you've already announced him. And I mean, you know, uh, um, I'm so happy to live in Philadelphia because this is the big city for Duchamp. Absolutely. Yeah, the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Uh, however, I can confess to something. Last June, I was in Frankfurt at the MMK and they had a Duchamp retrospective. And I discovered so many things I didn't know, and especially about the younger Duchamp. They had many, many interesting artworks and especially funny drawings that he made for a while when he was 18, 20. There you can see that Duchamp was a very good draftsman. And uh, there are little body, little like erotic, little illustrations and so on. Very well done. So yeah, I had chosen, you had asked me to choose a work of art. And I had chosen that little piece because it's very surprisingly simple and bizarre. Uh, it's on music paper uh yellow with some kind of yellow paint and you see a very basic drawing of a man on a bicycle bending his head down on a slope going up and the title is very bizarre in french is avoir l'apprenti dans le soleil so this is why the soleil literally to have the Apprentice in the Sun. Neither in English nor in French does it make sense. It doesn't mean anything, avoir l'apprenti dans le soleil. Uh, and so my uh, own moment of insight came 10 years ago, or maybe less. I was in Paris with a group of students from UPenn. And with my friend Ken Loom, we were taking them for a week, visiting shows and so on. And we had seen lots of shows and done many things, but suddenly, one in the middle of the night in my hotel room in the Latin Quarter, I woke up and I had a sort of mystical vision <laughs> of letters, <laughs> letters of fire <laughs> dancing uh, uh, on the background of the curtain. And these letters were, and I was, hadn't been thinking about that work of art, suddenly I saw that. Avoir l'apprenti dans le soleil was a permutation, and I'll just say it rapidly in French, le soleil apprend-il avoir dedans? Meaning, does the sun teach you to see within? And th this was it. That was sort of, I thought, wow, this must be it. So Ken Loom, who is a good artist and knows Duchamp, was there, said, do you think? He said, well, maybe, I don't know, could be. And so what? So this is the kind of weird game Duchamp was playing all the time. Uh, Marchand du sel, Marcel Rose Duchamp, and so on. Uh, Rose la vie, and all that. But you see, it was, so this little cyclist pedaling against all odds towards the sun, 
uh, is also a meditation on what Duchamp called the retinal, that is the domination of the retinal. Le soleil does the sun. Le soleil the, is the condition for life and light. Okay, is the sun enough somehow? And the question could be answered by no, no, the sun is not enough to teach you to see within yourself, because precisely if you see, look within yourselves, you look into darkness, or maybe, which is a Freudian question, will you try to put some sun inside your darkness? Will you try to make it come clearer? And so on. You see all the questions you could ask from that very simple sentence, if it is the sentence hidden in Avoir l'apprenti dans le soleil. I mean, the fact that, and I don't often have those kind of quasi mystical revelations, but I really felt I had cracked the code there. And because Duchamp, we know, would have a principle of economy that was a principle of scarcity. Uh, he said, with a ready-made, you don't want to have too many ready-made. You will destroy the process of taking an object and signing it and so on. Don't do it 10 times a day. This is bad. You become Andy Warhol. Uh, the, uh, do it once in a while. And for this little sketch, uh, can go back to issues of you know music, John Cage meditated on all these. And actually, John Cage was a little critical of the way Duchamp would use chants and puns and so on. And Duchamp was more punning than Cage, in a sense. But see, this is a, a, a Duchampian que champion question. Uh, do you trust the sun, as you could say, an Apollinian principle of representation to make art? Or do you need, in a more Nietzschean manner, a principle of darkness to go within the darkness and so on? Or can you combine the two? Or can you play on the difference? You know, you have all the problem of Nietzsche's aesthetics here. Uh, and, and the issue, even of Freud, what can be at times seen as a little naive notion in the early Freud, that we will take the projector of Freudian theory and shook, uh, bring it to bear in our dark spots and so on, and shuck, see all the little monsters lurking there. Oh, I see my id, I see my superego, and so on. You know, we know that this is not the way it works, but uh, this is where we must ironize a certain Freudianism, bringing light to darkness, enlightenment. No? But at the same time, even Lacan would say, my program is that of the enlightenment. This is why in those, I, I, I worked a lot on Marquis de Sade uh, recently, because Marquis de Sade is a philosopher of the enlightenment. Huh? Uh, uh, and Marquis de Sade radicalizes the program of the enlightenment. Huh? Uh, the uh, Sade's motto, il faut tout dire, you have to say everything. But at the same time, a lot of darkness will, will come and may even blot the sun. This was actually, uh, surprisingly, the title chosen by Annie Lebrun uh, for a great show on sad, Attack Against the Sun. And I, I, I like the work of Annie Lebrun. I think she, I don't know whether you, you, you yeah. know her name. 
and she's a, a good French writer and surrealist, let's say, late surrealist uh, writer who had, uh, uh, I, I couldn't see the show, but I got the catalog on uh, uh, Marquis de Sade. And it's not so easy to show with works of art the work of Sade. But Sade is for me an important reference yeah. point. Yeah, that's great. You're making me see the image of this artwork in a very different way. As you speak, I see the human figure that's on the bicycle kind of curling into itself or like looking at its navel almost as it's riding. Yes, uh, but yes, 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 yes. But you know, the bicycle for, and we could go on at, at some length, but for Duchamp, the bicycle is a reference mm. to Jarry, because mm -hmm. Alfred Jarry uh, uh, was a cyclist and he wrote a lot about cycling and so on. And I don't think that Duchamp was a cyclist himself, uh, but so it's more kind of a, a character like, like Jarry, uh, always going on, muscular, aggressive, and a little at the same time puny and attacking too much. <laughs> uh, and so, so the, the, uh, Duchamp's uh, uh, fascination for Jarry, who is, I think, for me, uh, the great genius of French modernism and launches French modernism, futurism, and so on with Ubu, but also all the poems and the, the novels of, of Jarry, French modernism, I would say, is really Jarry, uh, which uh, is, in a way, changes a little bit the dates we often assign to modernism. Jarry uh, wrote between uh, 1890 and 1902-3, but uh, Jarry was so important for Jarry and Roussel, uh, were the two main references for, for Duchamp, whose work is sort of homage and then moves things beyond and then at time stops uh, stops producing art for a long time returns to art problematizes the finite or infinite quality of, of art yeah. as well yeah 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 oh yeah i hadn't thought about jarry in a while but that's that totally makes sense and there's a famous uh, parodic text of jarry describing the stations of the cross Christ's crucifixion as oh, the Tour yeah. de France uh, with Spain. Yeah, yet. <laughs> yeah, he does look very much I find like it very, 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 in, in yeah, a yeah. suffering mode. <laughs> imagine, imagine, yeah, 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 yeah. Instead of uh, Jesus carrying a cross, uh, so, uh, the, the kind of suffering masochistic cyclist in the Tour de France or the Italian yeah, Giro. Absolutely. Going uphill <laughs> also. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. The sun being the yeah. father, of course. Well, this has been fascinating. I mean, I could, I feel like I could continue to ask you for another hour to <laughs> expand on some of these uh, points that you have made, but I think we'll leave the the audience and even myself with just like more to think about for now. I hope that you enjoyed yourself as well. And I did, I did, I did. Thank you very much, Fernanda. It was a pleasure, and I, 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 I hope we can have a few outraged letters of people saying, "What? How can you allow such an obviously deranged individual?" Uh, <laughs> 
about insanities. Uh. No, I don't know. I'll let you know what the reactions are when exactly. they come. But usually they have yes. been favorable and I think they will be welcome, Great. hopefully. But we'll see. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity Thank you. to speak with Jean-Michel. you. Thank you. Jean-Michel. Okay. Take care.